Fishing like a local isn't just about catching fish. It's about connecting with the environment and the people who call it home. It's about hearing the stories and traditions that have been passed down for generations and sharing unforgettable moments with the people you meet along the way. Fishing like a local is having an experience that stays with you forever. And with Fishing Booker, you can experience it too, no matter where you are. Discover your next adventure on Fishing Booker. This upcoming concert season will be all about the boots, and Tecovis is your stop for the best in Western style. Tecovis has seasonal and limited edition offerings this spring and summer, including men's and women's boots, apparel, hats, bags, and more. All Tecovis boots are made by hand in a time-honored tradition with timeless styles that are always on trend. And Tecovis has first wear comfort with little to no break-in period. It's hard to find this level of comfort paired with this level of style. Stop by your local Tacova store, have a complimentary drink or two, that's WCB style, and shop new styles. The smell of fresh leather and friendly staff are at your service. Many stores even have leather custom branding to make your boots truly personalized. And with regular live music and events, there's no in-store experience like it. If you can't make it into a store, just visit tecovas.com. That's T-E-C-O-V-A-S.com. They offer free shipping on all boots, as well as free returns and exchanges, and ship right to your door. Go to tecovis.com and find your new favorite pair of boots today. Hi, my name is Bill Crowell, and this is Impact Outdoors Podcast. We would uh, quail hunt, I mean, four or five days a week. I mean, the only way I could get out of school was to go hunting. My dad would tell my teacher, opening day of goose season, Bill ain't going to be there. Bill's going goose hunting. And uh, same thing with, with quail. We would uh, take the dogs and we'd work the dogs. It was just a way of life with me. Uh, and I was just blessed with a father who took a snotty nose little kid with him and showed him how to hunt and showed him the, uh, the great world, the great natural world that the God, made, God made for us, for us to enjoy. And uh, my father was a great Christian man. Uh, we didn't hunt on Sunday. We went to church on Sunday, but we sure hunted on Saturday, and we hunted the other five days a week. And uh, we, uh, I was just raised that way. Hey everybody, welcome back to Impact Outdoors Podcast this week, and man, I'm super excited. We've got my great friend, Mr. Bill Crowell, and um, he has joined us today, and we got the opportunity to go to his house and interview Bill, and he has a tremendous talent in building wild game calls, uh, specifically turkey calls. Um, he builds a whole lot of other different calls as well, but especially is for sure turkey calls, and um, we got to see a wide variety of those and, and hear how that whole thing came about with him and and uh, really learn Bill's whole backstory about growing up in the outdoors with his family and and uh, everything that came with um, with his career in the Air Force and then moving on and working with uh, McDonnell Douglas and man I didn't even know he, he got to work on the Gemini space program back in the 60s so a lot of cool stories coming out of this great conversation with Bill and uh, can't wait for you to hear it um, also, if you haven't heard, we are now part of the Waypoint Outdoor Collective, and if you have not yet joined or signed up with Waypoint, go to waypointtv.com, 
and you can get access to all of your favorite hunting and fishing shows. And, um, you know, with the collective, there's a great group of podcasters on there and so honored to be part of that now. Um, and the best thing about it is it's all free. So get signed up today and start getting some great content delivered right to your TV, your phone, uh, wherever you can download the app for Waypoint. So with, uh, with that being said, let's, uh, let's go ahead and jump right into the podcast this week with Mr. Bill Crowell. I am sitting here with my good friend, Mr. Bill Crowell today, and uh, you know, I've known Bill for, gosh, probably the last six, seven years now through, like that, yeah. through our NWTF chapter we're a part of, and uh, um, found out early on that, that Bill makes turkey calls, and not just any turkey calls. These are handmade, one of a kind, um, and they work. I have seen it, and... Uh, I believe he is currently working on this one maybe for me and uh, hopefully we'll get to use that coming up maybe. It's on my to-do list. Yeah so (laughs) but Bill welcome to Impact Outdoors and thank you so much for inviting me into your home and and, uh, doing the show with us today. Well I appreciate it. Uh, This will be my first podcast. Uh, (laughs) uh, I'm I'm learning as we go and uh, I'm looking forward to it and uh Love to talk about turkeys and turkey calls. Yep, me too. So, yeah, I've been wanting to have you on the show for a long time, and uh, we've been working on it, just trying to get the schedules to line up and everything, with everything going on with this pandemic this last year. It's just been it's just been tough, but and we finally fighting, got a day. I've been fighting a bad back. And, uh, yep. Yeah. Stars just haven't been so, in line. Well, Looking at all the calls, you've got you've got quite the spread here, and uh, we'll talk about all those here in a little bit. But uh, you know, I really you know um, I want to hear now just meeting somebody, and you you'd see all this, and you'd be like, man, that's crazy. Why are you making all that stuff? But what you know, everybody has a story, right? So what was your story? How did you get started? It had to have been something growing up in the outdoors or whatever got you into where you're at now with these turkey and duck calls and deer calls and stuff. Where did it all start for Bill Crowell? It started all when I was about five or six years old. My father was a big bird hunter. He was a duck, goose, quail hunter. I was raised in the the boot hill of Missouri uh, adjacent to the Mississippi River. And my father, I was blessed with a, a great father. He was a great hunter and a great fisherman. And he would take me with him when he went hunting and fishing. And I can remember the first, the earliest I can remember about hunting is he took me on a sandbar in the Mississippi River right across the, from Charleston, Missouri, called Marshall's Bar. And I was about six, seven years old. Wasn't old enough to carry a gun, but I mean, I was, I thought I was the biggest boy on the block. I mean, I was a goose hunter of this world. And my first memory is of him taking me on Marshall's Bar. I had my trusty Red Ryder BB gun, and my dad was working in East Canada, Canada geese into a pit on the bar. And I would jump up with my BB gun, and I'd pump that thing, and I'd shoot them, and I'd turn to my dad, and I said, man, I hit that one. <laughs> and uh, that was my my beginning 
of hunting. Uh, as I grew older, my dad, my first gun was a 410 pump, and I graduated to a 16 gauge and then to a 12 gauge. But my, I was blessed with a father that took the time to take me hunting. And I mean, we goose hunted, we quail hunted. I killed my first bobwhite quail with a 410 pump. Mm. And that tells you, I mean, I shot a lot before I killed one. Yeah. But uh, I mean, it was, it, I was just raised with it. Uh, all my life, I've hunted. I have, uh, primarily as I was growing up, I was a duck hunter, a goose hunter, uh, a quail hunter. My dad would have four to six bird dogs. We would, uh, my father's family were all farmers, and so we had a, a lot of land to hunt. We would uh, quail hunt, I mean, four or five days a week. I mean, the only way I could get out of school was to go hunting. My dad would tell my teacher, opening day of goose season, Bill ain't going to be there. Bill's going goose hunting. And uh, same thing with, with quail. We would uh, take the dogs, and we'd work the dogs. And it was just a way of life with me. Uh, and I was just blessed with a father who took a snotty-nosed little kid with him and showed him how to hunt and showed him the, uh, the great world, the great natural world that the God, made, God made for us, for us to enjoy. Absolutely. And uh, my father was a great Christian man. Uh, we didn't hunt on Sunday. We went to church on Sunday. But we sure hunted on Saturday, and we hunted the other five days a week. And uh, we, uh, I was just raised that way. Mm. Uh, over a period of time, as I got older, I mean, I hunted through high school. I would <laughs> schedule. I wouldn't schedule a class for the first two periods in high school so I could duck out in the morning. I'd come to, <laughs> I'd come into a class with my camo on, uh, may have blood on my shirt. Uh, I parked my pickup truck in the parking lot and left a shotgun in the back window. You can't do that today. <laughs> and didn't lock it. Uh, and uh, my teachers understood me. They they accepted me for what I was. And uh, <laughs> I I just was raised that way. I was raised to you know to spend time in the outdoors. Uh, same thing with crappie crappie fishing in the spring. Mm. We crappie fished. Uh, we just. Uh, uh, <laughs> I laughed. I, I discovered the game of golf. Oh, I was dating a girl in high school who was a golfer, and so I had to learn how to play golf. And my dad says, "Boy, you're wasting your time. You ought to be duck hunting." <laughs> and uh, but I was raised that way. I mean, it was just normal. You, 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 you know, it was just a way of doing things. What did your mom think about missing all them school days? My mom was very much in favor of it. I had a mom that was. She was a big crappie fisherman. She didn't hunt, but she never, as long as I kept my grades decent, uh, she had no problem with Dad taking me out of school. It was, uh, now I had a younger sister that, I mean, she was afraid to get in a boat. We'd have to put a blanket over her head to get her away from the dock to go crappie fishing. Mm. But uh, she, once she got away from the dock, she was okay. But uh, I used to laugh. I mean, she was, oh, you she was just petrified. She couldn't. We, we literally put a blanket over her, wow. a sheet or something. 
so we could get her away from the dock. Huh. She was fine when she got out on when the water. When she got away from the dock, she was okay. Huh. Loved to fish, but she she sure didn't like it. <laughs> Getting in that boat was a, oh, wow. was a chore. Well, that sounds like a pretty good childhood right there. I think one I'm even jealous of. So, and I got to spend a lot of time in the outdoors growing up, you know. I, but I never got I never got into hunting until I was an adult, and um, I think a lot of that was, you know, there wasn't a lot of hunting close by me with friends and stuff. You know, most people, you know, fish some and, and things like that. But uh, growing up in Oklahoma, but uh, when as I got older, you know, the hunting kind of piqued an interest, but I was, all the money I made for my jobs, it was going into fishing. So that's all I did until I moved to Texas. <laughs> we would, when I was in high school, I ran around, you know, I played sports. I played baseball, played football a couple of years, uh, played sports a little bit. But my my primary interest was hunting. And I had four or five buddies, and, you know, we hunted. Uh, it wasn't, you know, in, uh, it wasn't abnormal for us to you know, all have shotguns when we were all 12, 14 years old, uh, you know, and uh, it, no, you didn't get in trouble driving down the street with a shotgun in your yeah. back window, uh, you know, and uh, it, it was just accepted where I lived was a hunting community, uh, you know, the, the guys that my father knew, uh, he hunted with, you know, with several business people he knew, uh, he was one of ten children, and eight of the ten children were farmers, and so we had farmland primarily to quail on. Mm-hmm. And but it was it was I mean, you just it, it was a way of life. I mean, it was there wasn't anything abnormal to hunt or fish. Yeah, we were in a small community, and uh, you know, and we ate. We always my dad had an expression: if you shoot it, you eat it, and uh, it. Uh, you know, we we would you know we would shoot game, but we cleaned it and we ate it. Mm-hmm. Mom cooked it. Uh, nothing better than good fried quail, milk gravy, some fried potatoes, and homemade biscuits. And uh, it just uh, it was a way of life at that at that time. Yeah, yeah. Well, um, after you, you know, after you're you're growing up now, and then. What did you do after school? Did you go into college or? I graduated from high school, went to college for a year. I really didn't know what I wanted to do. Uh, so I went in the Air Force and uh, was in the Air Force for four years. During that time, uh, I qualified for uh, a guided missile school. I ended up uh, in a drone squadron, and I was fortunate to be on a uh, flying crew on a b-26 i was a launch engineer on a b-26 and uh, i flew about oh four or five days a week uh enjoyed it was big uh came very close to staying in the air force i decided i want to go back to school so i got out of the air force went moved to st louis missouri and went to work for uh, mcdonald douglas or boeing and with my electronic training in the Air Force, I qualified as an electrical engineer. Mm-hmm. Uh, I worked for McDonnell Douglas for years. At that time, I was going to college at Washington U and St. Louis U. And 
University of Missouri in St. Louis. I got a degree of math, minor in business, and I worked for McDonald and uh, as a radar engineer on the F-4 wow. series aircraft and on the Gemini space program. I worked on Gem- several of the Gemini. Wow, that had to be center. that had to be something back in it the was, day. It was, was so what, what exciting. Year, what year was that roughly? It was in the sixties. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was so exciting that McDonald was big in the space program. Uh, we would, I mean, I met astronauts that were flying in the in the space program uh, in mm-hmm. St. Louis. They would come in to review the capsule, and you know, we'd be talking like we'd sit down and talk. They mm-hmm. want to know what was going on with the capsule, and we would talk with them, you know, and bring them up to date. They'd have questions. Uh, they would have concerns, and you know, we um, we did quite a bit of work. I worked on two of the capsules. Uh, wow. Uh, yeah, it, was a, it was you know that's an exciting a, time. It was I didn't very know exciting. I didn't know that you did that till you had brought it up earlier today. And and uh, I mean, good gosh, man, you had your hands on part of our history. I mean, that was such a key turning point in our nation's history. The whole '60s and the space movement and everything. And and uh, that's pretty cool, Bill. Well, we you know I was in St. Louis when they finished the arch, a big gateway to mm-hmm. the West Arch in downtown St. Louis. But uh, the sad note, I was in St. Louis when two of the astronauts crashed a plane there at Lambert Field and got killed, and mm. I was in a building adjacent to where they crashed, and it was a, a very sad time. Mm. I uh, met an astronaut, my last name was Cernan, Gene Cernan, and uh, he was there in the second aircraft, and it was a very sad day for the space program, but... Uh, uh, those people were special people, and I got to be a little part of it. And I yeah. cherish that. Yeah. Have great memories of working on that. That's pretty incredible. So, so you, I mean, you've got all this engineering stuff now going, working on all these jets and the the space program stuff with Gemini and all this. And and uh, are are you still hunting a bunch at this time or? Um, I'm sorry. Are you still hunting a bunch during this time oh, yes. while you're I, working? My, I were, when I worked at McDonnell Douglas in St. Louis, my home where my mom and dad and my sister lived, where I was raised, was about two and a half hours from St. Louis. Every weekend, I'd work Monday through Friday and probably three weekends a month, particularly during hunting season, uh, during the fall and the, you know, in the winter when I could duck hunt and uh, Goose hunt, mm-hmm. chase quail. I'd go home and I'd drive down Friday night, get there midnight. My dad and I'd get up Saturday morning, go whatever season was open, we'd go right. hunting. And so I, uh, uh, I chose to work in St. Louis because the very important part of my life up to that point was hunting, mm-hmm. and I could still make make a living in St. Louis, but I could hunt. I could fish on the weekends with two, two and a half hours away. And I took all my vacation. I'd take vacation, uh, you know. My boss would laugh, and he said, well, you want opening week of quail season, don't you? And I said, sure, like to. And I would go to go home and hunt and fish with my father and uh, with, with high school buddies that were still living in the mm-hmm. little town of Sykeston, Missouri. Yeah. And I never, I never missed a beat. Uh, the only time I really did my 
do a whole lot of hunting was when I was in the Air Force, and I was stationed in uh, Panama City, Florida most of the time. I was in Denver for a while, but I spent about two and a half years in Panama City. Mm-hmm. And But I did a lot of local fishing. I did a lot of offshore fishing. I uh, did a lot of bass fishing back in uh, back in the panhandle of Florida. Uh, didn't do much much hunting, but I I kept up with the fresh and saltwater fish, and uh, I did that most of the time. And I would take vacation and come home, and I always made it home for opening wheel weekend a week of quail season, and right. usually for it's like uh, Christmas uh, morning. Yeah, well, I mean. Uh, <laughs> I I had a, a deal with my boss that uh, I want off at certain times of the year. Everybody else want off in summertime. Eh, let me be, let me get off in duck season or let me get off yeah. in oil season. So yeah, I I kept subdued somewhat when I was in Florida, but once I moved to St. Louis, uh, I did a lot, and then uh, I worked all in St. Louis for ten twelve years. Going to college, uh, finishing up, getting my degree, and then uh, had an opportunity to move back to to Boot Hill. Uh, there was a company building a new plant in New Madrid, Missouri, aluminum plant, and uh, I got an opportunity to go back there as a construction engineer during construction, and then I worked there for 30, 32 years, and uh, it, I made the decision uh, to move from St. Louis. I was married at that time. My wife and I were expecting, mm-hmm. but uh, I made the decision to move back to Boot Hill. <laughs> it was all back to hunting and fishing. Right. Uh, my priorities uh, sometimes were maybe not the wisest, but uh, I sure loved hunting and fishing. I really wanted to raise my son in that environment. And I made the decision to move back to the Boot Hill, and uh, it was a very wise decision. I worked there for, like I said, 30 odd years. Yeah. During that time then, I got into, I, I was instrumental in buying a hunting club in Southern Illinois, Goose Hunting Club, and I goose guided and did commercial goose hunting for Oh, 10, 12 years, something like that. Yeah. So did y'all own that outright, or were oh, you yes. partners? We bought, okay. we, bought the, uh, we bought the farm or the ranch. It was adjacent to Horseshoe Lake, Illinois, which at that time was one of the better commercial goose hunting, Canada goose hunting areas in the mm. country. Uh, I had hunted over with my father at an earlier age, and I, I got the opportunity to buy a small hunting club found me a couple of partners to go in with me and we bought we bought the farm and we set it up we had like eight pits on it we we'd lease out four or five of them mm-hmm. by the year and then i would commercial goose hunt out to the others and uh it uh did that for many years and the only thing that really got me out of it was i discovered turkey hunting yeah and uh that's become quite the obsession. So, and I think it was, um, you know, we talked several times about this kind of the story, how your love of turkey hunting came about, but, um, you know, it involves, uh, your sister and the Drury family of all people. And, uh, 
I mean, just tell us, you know, that's going to go into everything that you're doing now. You know, how, how all that started. I was, my brother-in-law worked for the Drury's, Drury Corporation, uh, Construction Group, mm -hmm. uh, which was uh, Mark and Terry's dad and uncle. And my sister's husband worked for them as a, uh, I think he was vice president of construction of one of their, one of their divisions. And each year my mm -hmm. brother-in-law loved a goose hunt. And so I, Larry would come down and we would, uh, I'd take him goose hunting. He'd call me and say, hey, I want to go goose hunting. You got any openings? And I said, well, sure. Come down such such a day and we'll hunt. And so he would bring some of the Drury's down with him. Uh, and they loved the waterfowl hunt. Uh, they weren't on just turkey hunters. They were, a couple of them were really good waterfowl hunters. Mm. And we did this for several years. And every spring, Mark or Terry Wan would contact my sister and say, hey, we want to reciprocate with Bill. Won't you bring him, tell him to come up here and go turkey hunt? And my excuse was always, hey, I crappie fish in the spring. I don't hunt in the spring, I hunt in the fall. I don't know anything about turkey hunting, and I don't want to know anything about turkey hunting. And so I put them off for probably four or five years. And finally one year in, call, and she says, they won't let me alone. They've limited <laughs> out, there's still two weeks left, a week left of turkey season, and they won't take no for an answer. And I said, oh, okay. I, I tell them I'll come up since so the last weekend. I went up and hunted Friday. The plan was to hunt Friday, Saturday, and Sunday, with Sunday being the last day of turkey season. And I said, okay, what do I need to bring? I have no idea. I don't own anything. It's spring-type camel. All I've got is fall, winter camel. And uh, the, the word I got back was, don't come if you don't wear a mossy old camel. At that time, Mark worked for Mossy Oak, and the instruction I got from my sister was, if you show up anything else, they ain't taking you. You're not going turkey hunting. So anyway, I drove up, and I kind of laughed. The, I got up there, and it was raining. Spring in Missouri is one rain after the other. Uh, if, if you want a turkey hunt in Missouri, you better like rain because mm -hmm. you're going to have it. And the particular weekend I went up, uh, I met uh, Terry at a, a local uh, service station that we headed out, and it was misting rain. And he says, what do you think of this rain? He says, uh, you know, what's your feelings on rain? And my old duck hunting mentality switched in, and I said, I love rain. Good time to duck hunt. <laughs> and so he kind of laughed at me, but... The first day we hunted on his uncle Marvin's ranch outside of St. Genevieve, Missouri. Mm. And we uh, we set up, and man, there were turkeys everywhere. They were gobbling, and they were just gobbling. And he would hit the call, box call or a mouth call, and they would cut him off. They were just everywhere. And he worked a couple birds, but they were what we call hand up. They were with mm -hmm. hens, and uh, when birds are hand up, you just can't, it's hard to break a gobbler away from live birds. Uh, the best turkey callers in the world 
We can do it occasionally. You can call the hen in, and a gobbler will follow. Right. But you just, it's hard to split them. But anyway, the first morning, we worked some birds. He worked some birds. And oh, my gosh. The first time that bird started strutting and gobbling and, you know, and reacting to his calls, I mean, I had discovered a whole new world. I was so, uh, I mean, entranced with it. I thought working a good Canada with him, big old Canada, when you're working them, they'll lock up and they'll cup their wings and they'll pop their feet down, and you know you got them, and they'll, they'll come into a call. But the first time that I saw somebody work a turkey, where that turkey gobbled and went into a strut, mm. and I mean, I was hooked. We didn't get a bird the first day. It was, they were just, they just, they just, we couldn't finish them all. Uh, I got back to my sister's to spend the night, called my wife, and I said, boy, I got bad news for you. <laughs> I said, I just picked up another vice. And she kind of laughed. She said, that's just what you need, another one. <laughs> and I said, I'm turkey hunter today, and I think it's going to be better than goose hunting. And she laughed, and she says, I didn't know there was anything better than the sun. <laughs> and so, anyway, the second day, we worked a bird. Uh, it was an awesome hunt. Uh, Terry knew what he was doing. I mean, I was just along for the ride. Mm -hmm. uh, but I, I harvested uh, about a 24-pound bird with Ooh. three beards. I mean. That's a butterball. Uh, I've never I've never killed one with three beards since then. I've killed probably. <laughs> I've killed over 100 birds, but I've never killed another one with triple birds. Wow. And uh, I just, I got buck fever. We, we worked a bird, and Terry says, okay, shoot him. And I was sitting there, and my gun barrel was swinging in a big circle. And here I've been hunting for many, many years at that time. And I didn't know there was such thing as buck fever. <laughs> but fortunately, on one of those swings, I lined up, and I shot the bird. And uh, it was, oh, I was hooked. Yeah. It, uh, I ended up backing down on my goose hunting. I switched over to spring turkey hunting. My buddies that I fished with thought I died. Uh, I mean, <laughs> I went whole hog. And that's the way I am. If I do something, I don't fiddle with it. I, I you know, I'm pretty full, dedicated. Full bore. Yeah. That's a that's a that's such a cool story and and you hear that same story time and time again from people on their first turkey hunt where they experience that right you know and, and I don't uh, know how many people I've I've guided a few people I've talked to people in groups about turkey hunting about turkey calls and I've had all of my buddies when I was growing up uh, a few of them were turkey hunters but most of them were deer hunters. Mm. They were bow hunters, they were muzzleload hunters, uh, they were gun hunters, but they were all deer hunters. But I don't know how many of them, when they discovered turkey hunting, the, the deer hunting kind of took a slack to it. It's something a little bit different. Mm -hmm. It's mind-boggling. You either love it or you don't want any part of it. Yeah. But if you love it, I mean, it's, it gets in your blood real, real quick. Yep. 
Yeah, and it's it's so addictive. I mean, I could go turkey hunting every day. Oh, you know, I can. I'm, 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 uh, you know, it kind of sucks right now just because, you know, we're so busy. I mean, you're boat up making calls, and I'm boat up with work, fishing, and all this stuff. And and the uh, season's open right now, and I haven't even gotten to go yet. So um, probably going to be another couple weeks before. But uh, luckily here in Texas, we're blessed with the long season. So um, some places it's pretty short. I mean, there's a lot of places that have only two-week seasons or so. And and um, But uh may have to go up north where the seasons are a little later this well, year. Well, you know, so. in Texas, we're blessed. Texas is large enough that we have what we call a split season. Mm. We have a south zone and a north zone. And the north zone runs all a couple weeks, starts a couple weeks later, and runs a couple weeks longer. And so you can hunt the south zone, and then when it goes out, you go you know, yeah. across Highway 10 and hunt the north zone. So it's we have, we're blessed with a long season. We're blessed with a lot of birds. We have, uh, Missouri was one of the primary places to turkey hunt. Mm. Uh, it was in the top one or two, maybe three in the nation. Uh, Texas is, Missouri had, uh, you know, eastern turkeys, well, we have Rio's in Texas. And, uh, but Texas is, you know, got, got some very good turkey hunting. I've, uh, I've been really uh, pleased with the, the turkey hunting I've seen in Texas since I've been here. Yeah. So what was the, what year was it when you shot your first bird? 1991. 91 so and you were still in missouri and so when when did you really i mean what started this like when did this start coming about after you moved to texas or no when i was i was very involved with ducks unlimited that was part of my duck hunting goose hunting experience uh i would help various positions in the state of missouri Ending up being state chairman for Missouri for DU for a term. Uh, my interest in duck hunting fostered my first entry into woodworking. I started making custom duck decoys. By this, I mean I was making a realistic, full-bodied, primarily mallard, canvas back, wood duck decoys. Now hmm. these were decoys that I had all, oh, some of them I had up to $100 in them. Wow. I would make uh, like the primary wing feathers and the tail feathers on them. I would make them separate and insert them into the decoy. Hmm. Striving, again my engineering background, striving for realistic decoys. Not, hmm. not primarily ones that you would take out and throw in the water. These were once that you set up on a on your desk yeah. or on a mantle and mm-hmm. uh, said ooh and ah and liked them and uh, I got into that very very heavy. I had a couple people that I met in Missouri that were hunters and were woodcraft were work workers and they helped me get started into the woodworking business. Mm-hmm. And I made wood I made decoys for probably seven or eight years sold them locally, sold some in the Peabody Hotel in Memphis and their shop. Uh, did that for a while, and I got burnt out. Uh, I was, uh, it was just so long and tedious. And, uh, so I started making uh, duck calls, duck and goose calls. Hmm. And uh, primarily, 
uh, I had a good friend that guided, did some guide work on our on our hunt club, and he was a, an older gentleman. He modified the old PSO uh, black Canada goose call, and he took one and by modifying the reed on it. I mean, he was good. He, I had people come over and say, you know, who in the world is doing that calling? And I got one time got accused of using electronic machines because Dub and Doug were calling goose geese with their call. And he fostered <coughs> my interest in game calls. Uh, I started out with primarily with Mallard calls, uh, and I played with them just, you know, learn, just trial and error, do this, do this, no formal training, uh, just trial and error, and uh, over a period of time, I learned how to make a decent duck call. Well, then, when I discovered turkey hunting, that was just a natural thing to do. I mean, I jumped into turkey calls out of this world. I mean, I was, yeah, I mean, wow. the duck calls kind of took sides, you know, took side of it. Uh, I just made, I had to have a better turkey call. Mm -hmm. There are a lot of good commercial calls on the market. Primos and people like that, Night and Hale, all make very good production calls. But I wanted to make a more of a custom call. Uh, it's not the same market. That's a little different market. Uh, and uh, I just wanted to make some custom calls. And so I started out with turkey calls when I went <coughs> to Texas. And uh, that was about, that's been 20 years ago. Mm. I've been making uh, custom calls for turkey calls, particularly for 20 years. Get ready for the greatest roast of all time. The Roast of Tom Brady. A Netflix live event happening May 5th. Hosted by Kevin Hart. The seven-time world champion gets his cleats held to the fire by famous friends and frenemies on an unforgettable night where everything is fair game. Tune in on May 5th at 5 p.m. Pacific time for The Roast of Tom Brady. Live only on Netflix. Yeah, and they are definitely custom. Like I've, you know, I, I use box calls a lot just because it's always windy a lot where I'm at and stuff. And, and uh, growing, you know, when I hunt back home in Oklahoma and here it seems like it's always blowing 30. So I use, I use those, you know, primarily get the distance out of them. But I know you make a wide variety of calls um, using multiple, you know, glass, slate, aluminum. And um, kind of tell us, like, like, you know this 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 call is so beautiful. You can see it. Now, explain what this call is. I know the people on on the audio can see it, but we'll post some pictures. I give a little background. I first started out making wooden pot calls. Uh, I played with box calls. Uh, I never got a design that I would thought was better than what I could buy. Uh, in my turkey hunting, I carry, I don't use a mouth call, but primarily because I have a <laughs> partial plate and I can't blow one, mm. and I've never mastered one. But uh, I use box calls as a locator call. Uh, if you're right in Texas, you better carry a box call. 
because mm-hmm. of the wind and because of the, the mesquite brush and what have you. Sound just doesn't carry good in the yeah. woods and primarily in, in, in middle to south Texas. But I, I use myself, I use Primos. Mm-hmm. They, they make a box called I Love and I carry it. I also carry in my pot calls, I carry about four or five different ones. But that different ones, I mean, the, the old standby pot call is a slate over glass. It's mm-hmm. the easiest to play. It's the easiest to learn how to use. Uh, most people, when they buy a turkey call, a pot call, they will, they will get a slate over glass. Um, I also make several other ones. I make an aluminum over glass. I make aluminum over slate. I make a glass over aluminum. I make a glass over slate. I make various combinations, uh, primarily to give you a different sound. The slate will be a soft, you know, easy sound, gentle sound. But if you're hunting on a windy day and you've got that bird out there 200 yards, he's going to have trouble hearing a slate. But you, you jump in there with a aluminum over glass or a glass over a slate or a glass over aluminum, and they're loud enough, they're higher pitched normally than a slate. Slate will be lower pitched, more of a raspy uh, old hen type. Old hen is raspy. Old hen is a slate. Uh, young hen will be more loud and sharper. And she'll, be, she'll sound more like aluminum or a glass call. Mm. They have other calls. They have ceramic. They have various types of glass. Uh, and I make I make probably about any one that you would want. However, I would recommend primarily a slate call. And I would carry an aluminum call. And I would carry a glass call. It gives... You'll have a bird out there. You'll see a bird... And, He's strutting or he's with hands. You hit the slate call and he don't pay attention to you. So you switch over, you try glass or you try aluminum. Because there, there'll be something that'll get his attention. And, uh, you know, it, it's uh, what turns him on today may not turn him on tomorrow. Yeah. And you just have a variety of the spice of life and varieties of spice with turkey call. Uh, if you get locked into one call, uh, you're going to have days when you don't, they don't pay attention to you. You just keep on going. And so uh, I make, uh, you know, a variety of calls. I make a lot of custom calls for gifts and for businesses. Uh, I'll put the logo in it. I have an uh, excellent uh, engraver, Rick Bull, who just, I mean, he can, he can put anything. If I can get in a computer, he can put it in a, on a call. And so we, uh, between the two of us, you know, we, we come up with a, a variety of calls. So, if, you know, do a lot of logo calls. Uh, we'll put them under glass or we can put them on a slate. And you can still play the call. Uh, it's got your logo on it or it's got your company logo on it or it's got a picture of your son or daughter and their first turkey in it. Uh, we can we can really make some gifts, some nice gifts, and they're you know the ones that we're doing right now. We're having what we call a cactus call, 
and that's the one that uh, Derek just showed you. This is a is a calf's call. It's the body of it is a piece of cola cactus from Arizona, and then I have a so cool. <laughs> and boy, it's, it's just beautiful call. Yeah. Uh, we over probably about six or seven years ago, I designed what I call my turkey track call. And it, that's what you see in the, on the back of it that you're seeing through is the turkey track. And it took, took some design work where the call sounded like a turkey. The first couple did not sound like turkeys. But anyway, that's our premier call right now, the cactus call. We can dye it, the uh, filler and the cast, the guy who does the custom casting for me. We can... Do about any color you want. We have red, blue, green, orange. Uh, if you have a college cover, if you like a University of Texas call, we can dive on that color. We can color it that color. Our A and M, we can do that, and uh, we can just we can make about what you want. But they're all custom calls, mm -hmm. and uh, they're, they're individually made. They're one of a kind. Uh, we have them in stores. I have outfitters that use it, use my calls, both deer calls and turkey calls. Yeah, and besides wood and cat, I'm gonna reach over here and grab a couple of these um, while we're sitting here talking. But uh, you know, there's a lot of options. So this is one here that I seen. I think maybe you posted a picture of it last year. Um, this one here. <laughs> as a rattlesnake skin. I had a gentleman in Alabama call me and he said, I killed a big rattlesnake. Can you make me a turkey call with a rattlesnake skin in it? I said, well, send me the skin and we'll see what we can do. We're in the process. I don't have it right in front of me. We're in the process of, uh, I'm in the process of making three pot calls that will I have on the back of them will have the snake skin. And, uh, you know, we can, uh, if, if you've got something you want to call made out of, well, I think we can do it. And uh, yeah. here we're. Snake skin is pretty cool. That is unique. Man. That is gonna, that's going to be a deer call. Uh, wow. We're making, I'm making three of the pot calls, and then I'm going to make a select group of, of uh, deer calls with the snake skin, rattlesnake skin. Mm. Incredible. These, this is one of our uh, grunt calls. This is a white-tailed grunt call. There's, I can make a little sound. It's a good call if you're a bow hunter. It'll stop a buck. Here, pull, your, you know. pull your mic back up. There oh, you go. Yeah. Get the mic back where yeah. you can hear me. <laughs> uh, it'll, it's, a, it's a good call for bow hunters. Uh, most of the people that buy them are bow hunters, uh, but I can make them again. I've got several different colors. Uh, I have one that, I mean, that one, that's, this one's like a, this is a, an acrylic one, all acrylic. It's going to the Y.O. Ranch in West Texas, along with some turkey calls. Uh, but I, you know, I can, I make all my own calls, like I said. Mm. And I'm, I can make just about anything you want. Man, so one of the questions I always have and I always struggle when I'm using a, a pot call is what striker to use. And I know you've got several 
different types of wood here. I mean, is there any any one that's better than the other? I mean, I know each one of them is going to sound different. What I do, part of the manufacture of my pot calls is when I get on, uh, I have a set of drawings. I have a, a micrometer, my calls. I, they're engineered to a degree. Mm-hmm. And when I get on with it, I have about eight or ten, I call them test strikers. And what I do is I take these test strikers and I'll play the call with them. And I have a certain sound I'm looking for in, in, a, in my turkey calls. And one of those test strikers will be close. They'll be better than the others. And so I use that as a guide. And each one of my calls comes with a call a striker that's made for that specific call. Yeah. I tune my calls. Uh, you know, you can you can get a, a generic striker that you can play with about any call, and it will give you a turkey sound. I'm looking for a, a better turkey sound, and so I select and tune each of one of my calls primarily with a striker. Most of my strikers are like this. They're two-piece. I'll make this, and then I will either change the shaft or I will turn down the head until I get the sound that I want. And uh, I'll have people come in and say, well, I want to sound different than yours. And the best customer I have is one that comes in sets and talks with me, and I play the call, and I say, okay, what do you want to hear? And they may want, uh, uh, I'm, I, I like a little higher pitch call. Mm-hmm. I select my calls, the ones I aren't with. Uh, I may have one striker in there that's medium, but by and large, most of my strikers will be medium to a high pitch. Part of that is due to the wind, and part of that, I just happen to like a higher-pitched striker. Yeah. Uh, that's just a personal thing. Uh, I've got people that I sell calls to, and they don't like the way I tune them, so I have to mistune them, in my opinion, to get what they want. <laughs> Everybody's got a different ear. Yes, they do. Yeah. And, and uh, it's what you're comfortable with. Yeah. If, uh, uh, that, that, you have to have that comfort zone. If you get a call and you're not comfortable with it, you're not going to call good, do a good job of calling turkeys with it. Mm-hmm. Confidence is a big factor in calling turkeys. You got to think, man, I can call that bird. He can't, he can't resist my sweet talk, and as such, you you know, you you got to have confidence. It's like anything else. You don't have confidence, you're not going to do it right. It's when those wily old gobblers go silent that always gets me because I never know to call more, to shut up and not call anymore or what. And that's, that's always the, the catch-22 with turkey hunting. <laughs> I, I learned very early. There's a, an old saying in, in, in hunting ducks. You call to their tails. If that duck is coming to you, you don't highball him. You you sweet talk him because he's he, he's liking what he's hearing and he's coming to you. <laughs> Same thing with turkeys. With turkeys, uh, 
you can call you can call you can turn a turkey off you can blow him out uh a lot of times you'll have a turkey on the roost in the morning he will gobble he'll if you're using an out hooter as a locator call he'll he'll shock gobble off that out hooter mm-hmm. and but he'll hit the ground and he may gobble once and shut up and probably go away from you most of the time they will not come to you uh if you're if they have two options one to come to you and one to go away most of the time they'll go away but most of the time they're with hens. They'll roost with hens, and hens will fly down, a gobber fly down, he'll go with the hens. Mm-hmm. Uh, you can call all you want to, he's not coming back. Uh, what I do in the morning, if I got a bird, he answers me a couple of times on the roost, he flies down, he answers me a couple of times. I'll, one time, I'll hit him a couple of times and then shut up. Uh, Normal for a turkey, when a mature gobbler sense or his genes tell him that the hen has come to him. He will get out and strut, have a strut zone. That hen will come to him. He will not go to the hen. That is not in his genes. If you get a bird in the morning, he gobbles on the roost, flies down, gobbles maybe once, twice and walks off don't give up on that bird uh there's uh i guess there's three if i can give you three things to help you turkey hunt the three things would be one patience two patience three patience patient kill turkey blowing calls sounding Calling forever will not do it. Mm-hmm. A lot of time, a turkey will be very, cur- very, you know, curiosity kills him. Yep. You can take, and if he flies down and he doesn't answer you, be on guard. Don't leave the turkey woods at 8 o'clock or 8.30 in the morning. Stay in there, and a lot of times, about 9 or 10 o'clock, that gobbler will leave the hens. He's got a great memory. He'll remember hearing you early in the morning, and he will come back looking for you. Yep. Uh, and that's, again, that's talking patience. Uh, I call, I do not call a lot. I probably, if anything, I may err on not calling quite enough. But uh, you can sure blow them out. And if, if you're sitting there and you're just calling up a star, that tells that gobbler, that you're a very interested him and that you're interested in coming to him and he's going to hang up he will sit out there 75 80 yards and he'll wait for you to come to him mm-hmm. but if you play on his curiosity if you sound interested but you're not quite uh a lot of times he will come in come in quiet oh uh, and, and the eastern birds, they're notorious for circling you. They all, you see one across the field, they go in the woods to the right or left of you. You think you lost him. About 15 or 20 minutes later, you hear him go, thuck, thuck, and he's sitting right behind you. He's about 10 yards behind you. You just reached up to scratch your head, and he saw your hand, and he made you. Mm-hmm. Back to patience. 
And uh, I used to be a running gunner. I am more prone now to patience and not and let them come to me. Yeah, I, I, I am, I am on the. Um, you know, I love being out there in the morning hearing them on the roost because that's usually when they're so active. But like you said, they do tend to shut up when they hit the ground a lot of times. And like you say, you'll hear them gobble, you know, sparingly and stuff. And then, uh, and then they usually go quiet for a couple hours. And and I bet eighty percent of the turkeys I've killed have always been between nine and one o'clock in the afternoon. And then again, a little peak, you know, later, you know, early evening, you know, before they head back to the roost. And and I, uh, I love hunting that middle of the day. I remember when I was first started turkey hunting with when I hunted with Mark. I mean, with Terry a couple of times, and then I hunted with another gentleman in Missouri. That I knew real well, and they both said you'll kill more turkeys from nine thirty, ten o'clock in the morning till noon. Are from about two o'clock in the afternoon till about four, maybe four thirty. Uh, they, uh, you know, so many people, uh, they, they, you know, they think they're going to kill them on the fly, on the fly down, yeah. and uh, you just don't. You'll spook more of them than anything trying you to get spook close. Them. Uh, I, I found that when I was running and gunning, you know, I was killing birds, but over the years I've come to the conclusion i probably spook more birds than i kill Mm -hmm. and uh the the birds uh you know they're in the woods every every minute of the day they don't hibernate somewhere at 10 o'clock in the morning they're still out uh the hens will go to a nest if they're nesting and the gobbler's still looking for a for a hen to mate with and if you're out there and you do a little sweet talking about 10 or 10 30 morning you have to be careful. A lot of times he will not answer you, but he'll show up. Mm-hmm. Uh, if you're if, if there's a year like this year, we've got a lot of jakes. Uh, jakes and gobblers fight during the spring, and if there's a lot of jakes, it will shut down the gobbling quite a bit. Uh, uh, the gobblers just are not going to gobble and let the jakes know where they're at. And so uh, it's you really have to have patience. You uh, you just have to you know keep sharp because the birds are still moving. Now it gets real hot like it does in Texas. It gets ninety five degrees. They're going to shut down probably nine thirty ten o'clock in the morning. They're going to sit under a shade tree somewhere and, and try to stay cool till about three or four o'clock in the afternoon. Mm-hmm. But and. Uh, if it's that hot, and I take a break in the middle part of the day. But in Texas, we can hunt them both in the morning and the afternoon. We don't have to shut down at noon. Yep. And I've, I've killed, harvested a lot of mature birds in the afternoon. They'll be single birds. Uh, they'll be looking for a hen. They won't gobble on you. They may gobble, shot gobble one time. Uh, I've had, a, I don't know how many of them answer my call one time, and then I never gobble again. And then 20, 15, 20, 30 minutes later, you look up, and here he's walking down the road. Yeah, or he crazy. walks out of the woods. And, you know, and he knows where you're at. Their hearing is exceptional. Their vision is exceptional. 
If they could smell, you couldn't kill one. Yeah, if you could, if they could smell, there's if no way smell, you could kill. You never kill one. <laughs> You'd have to shoot them with the rifle. So yeah, it, I mean those those birds will they will drive you crazy, which is what drives us crazy and wants us to go back every time because you want to beat them. You know, you wow. want to try to outsmart them, and, and but they will shut down, and you would think there's not a turkey in the county, you know, and then a few hours later, there's birds all around you, goblins. Well, and it's, it's they're, they're so, they so react to weather. Uh, they're, they, they sense when the weather's going to get bad, and my opinion, some of the best times to hunt is if you've got a weather front coming in, say it's coming in tomorrow. Mm-hmm. Hunt today. They'll be very active, very vocal. During the weather, changing weather, they'll shut up. Day afterwards, they'll be very active. If you've got a rainstorm, not a not a big one, just say it, it's raining in daylight. I don't know how many times I've done this. Pull up, be pouring down rain. I'll sit in my truck and wait till it quits raining. When it quits raining, you find you an open field. Sit on the edge of it, because that bird will come out, and you'll see him start preening. He'll start puffing up. He'll start shaking his feathers, getting rid of the rain. Some of the best hunting I've ever had has been right after a rain or right before rain. Uh, during the rain, <laughs> I'm kind of like a turkey hibernate. I, I, I don't think I have to stand out there and get sopping wet to be a good turkey hunter. Oh, man. Yeah, yeah, it's just... You know, it's funny watching them trying to dry off out there in those fields. Oh, they'll just the puff rain. up and they'll shake and they'll preen and, uh, you know, and they're, uh, they're trying to put oil on their feathers and they're trying to get rid of the water. And mm-hmm. uh, that's just a normal thing for them. Yep. Well, um, well, I love talking about turkeys. We can sit here I can talk all day show. with it. I get carried away. Uh, my wife has an expression for me. She says this. They cut up your. They cut your head open. All it could fall out be turkey feathers, and uh, uh, she's pretty accurate. Man, well, you know this. Me and you are both passionate about um, giving back and helping with stuff, and and that's how I met you was through National Wild Turkey Federation through our chapter here in Houston and one of the chapters here in Houston. And uh, but you you were, you know, instrumental in supporting different groups that are you know conservation related i mean i know you do with nwtf with ducks unlimited with the mule deer foundation rocky mountain rocky elk. mountain elk foundation yep. and uh, i know you've been getting a lot more into developing calls for for stuff that's not high highly available on the market you know like like the mule deer stuff and i know you're working on some access stuff possibly and and um but i mean what um what does it mean to you to be able to give back and, and, and just, you know, you're making things that, I mean, these are, these are things that people will cherish for the rest of their lives. And that's gotta be so cool, especially the ones that you really personalize for the individual. Um, I mean, that's, I mean, just knowing, I know you get feedback from these people who shoot birds and stuff, but what does that, how does that make you feel? There's two things I want to talk about a little bit. Conservation. When I was involved in Ducks Unlimited, it was very, very instrumental. Very, I, I had, a, I had a, a motto that I wanted to leave the ducks in better shape than I found them. I, I, that was instilled into me when I was young with my father. 
we would we would quail hunt. And my dad would always say, we'll, we'll, we'll work a covey of quail, first 12, 15 birds in it, we'll shoot four or five out of it, and we'll leave the rest for seed. He was a very believer in conservation. Mm-hmm. You can go in and sure, you can go in and eliminate a covey of quail. But when you do, you won't have any next year. And uh, I firmly believe in conservation while it's ducks, mule deer, turkeys, whatever. You do not overshoot. You manage the wildlife. I mean, they have a hard enough time surviving uh, with drought, with, you know, predators, what have you. And we should strive to leave whatever animal we're associated with, we should strive to leave it better than we found it. I had a lease in South Texas that I was the only turkey hunter on it. I would never shoot out the birds. If I scouted it and I found we had six, eight, ten gobblers on it, I'd shoot maybe one or two. I would never shoot any more. I would never shoot more than half. I would leave at least 50% of what I thought was there, there for seed and for future generations. We want the hunting society, we want to have game forever. Ducks Unlimited, Wild Turkey Federation are two examples of conservation methods that have taken low numbers and over good management have got them where they're 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 at the higher levels. Uh, I firmly believe in that. I just, you know, and you, I've, I've hunted with people that, you know, they had to shoot, they had to kill a lemon every day, and yeah. I grew out of that many years ago. And uh, it's just, uh, and when my calls, you know, I try to make these calls that. When somebody buys one or gets one as a gift, they're proud of it. It's something they cherish. It's not a plastic call that you can buy at Walmart, but it's a it's an it's an instrument. It's a, almost a musical instrument, but it's an instrument that you make it for a gentleman. He gives it to his son. Mm-hmm. Uh, I. I, w- I want you to be proud. If you have a crowd custom call, it is the best I've been able to make. It looks good, but it sounds good. And one of the highest compliments I get, and I get, I have a group of people I keep in contact with prior to, during, and after turkey season particularly. And the best thing I'd get is I'll get a phone call from Daryl or I'll get a call from Jeffrey, or I'll get a call from somebody and say, guess what I did? I just killed a wild turkey today with your call. (laughs) And that is what turns my crank, because somebody has been successful, somebody's had a great day in the outdoors, and I was a small part of it. And I, my calls are made to be used, I, I get, Numerous comments. Oh, it's too pretty. Don't we don't want to use it? We don't want to get it wet. If you get one of my calls and it, it for some reason is damaged, 
I will replace it. It has got a guarantee. Mm. Man. Well, I can't wait to get this cactus call later this year. And uh, but I want people to know. Why don't you tell? Why don't you tell everybody um, where can they find you and how to how to get a hold of you? Okay, I have a website, Crowl Custom Calls. I'm on YouTube, Crowl Custom Calls. Uh, you can call me. I have uh, my phone number is two eight one. Four six eight one two one six. That's my cell number. Uh, when you call, I hopefully I said crowd custom calls. Uh, and uh, what I do, I mean, each one, each call I made is special. Each one is one of a kind. Uh, I try to work with people. I follow up with you. You you may get a little tired of me calling and saying, "Hey, have you had any luck yet?" Or how's turkey season? Mm-hmm. Uh, I want you to be happy with my call. I want you to, to treasure it. And it is uh, it's a nice call. I've enjoyed it. I'm glad that I bought one. And uh, but primary, my primary contact is through my cell phone. Uh, I you can call contact me through my website. It's Crow B underscore B at yahoo.com and that's all that's all on my website uh, you can see my calls uh, I make calls I make gun cases if you've got a uh, a prize pistol that you want to put in a very nice gun case I can make you a custom gun case for that pistol uh, I make call wise uh, I make elk calls, I make whitetail calls, I make mule deer calls, duck, geese, blue wing teal, varmint calls, I make uh, owl hooter calls, I make crow calls, I make sets. One of the uh, big sellers that I have is a turkey call with a matching owl hooter or a matching uh, crow call. I made mean, the body of both calls will be made out of the same material. It'd be a matching set. And yeah. we can put your name on it. We can, we can engrave it. Uh, you know, we can, we're very open to what you want to buy, what you, what you're looking for. Yeah. And we, I will, I will make sure, um, in the show notes after we get this up and running, it'll, all that information will be on there for everybody to, to reach out and get a hold of bill and get your calls ordered. And, um, and man, can't wait to, uh, to to see some more turkeys coming in so i know uh, hopefully next couple of weeks we'll be out and uh, at our good buddy gene's place over in junction for our big uh, hunt fish podcast event we've got going on and we've got people from all over coming and uh, i'm ready to get i'm itching to get in the woods well even if i'm not shooting i just want to see some birds in person so the word i have i've talked to several people today that are hunting uh one guy's in Florida, another one's in Alabama. Uh, several of them are in Texas. Uh, one's in uh, Kansas. And right now the birds are hinned up. Uh, they're kind of hard to hunt. Uh, but I think they should be getting close to the end of that cycle. I think good hunting is probably a week to two weeks away. Yep. I think the... I really do, I, you know, and I'm not doing this to hype you up or, you know, to yeah. sound good. 
I honestly think from what I'm hearing that the, the good hunting is in front of us. Uh, the weather is starting to warm up. Uh, I, just, I just hope it don't get to 100 degrees. But uh, yeah. if it gets up in the 80s, lows in the 60s, 70 at night, I do dirty weather. And uh, mm-hmm. I, I think the, I really think from what I'm seeing, uh, they're not seeing a lot of single turkeys out, a lot of single hens yet. They're still seeing some and they're in groups. Uh, the one guy from, from Florida says, you know, they're, they're seeing gobblers still two and three and four in a bunch. They're seeing hens the same way, three and four or five in a bunch. Uh, and that's, that means that they haven't really split up. They haven't gone to nest yet. Uh, when you start seeing singles, uh, single hens, and you see them, they come get a drink and go home, uh, that means they're on a nest. And uh, that's when the old gobbler gets looking for girls, and that's when he'll come to that call, and that's when you can. <laughs> My buddy of mine says, you can take him for a ride in your pickup truck. Yep, yep. So, well, Bill, thank you so much for being on the show. Um, proud I to call you, you a friend. I, uh, and- it's, it was great to, to do the podcast. Uh, this yeah. is the first one I've done. It's been a, a learning experience. Uh, but I love to talk about turkey hunting. Uh, it just it's just well, in my blood, unfortunately. Well, you've and, got a, you've got a great story and how you got started and, and your background and and with the Air Force and and working on the space program. I mean, this is all such cool stuff and and uh, learned a few things I didn't know about you yet. So that was pretty cool. And um, but uh, but I really appreciate you coming on. Thanks for, thanks for being on. Well, my and, pleasure. Um, hopefully, maybe next year, me and you can get out to Jeans and do some turkey hunting together. Well, he has some good hunting. So, yeah. uh, he has a lot of turkeys. Uh, Gene has uh, one of the better places I've hunted. Uh, I'm sorry I missed it this year, but uh, yep. I'm sure looking forward to it next year. They've got a lot of birds. Uh, they're hearing birds. Mm-hmm. They're still a little tough, but they're, they're, they're not really. They're kind of yeah. sounds like they're still hinned up. Uh, I've got a buddy, Lonnie, that's there. He's there. He got in, I think, today. Uh, I should hear from him probably tonight or tomorrow uh, what's going on in Gene's. But yeah. Gene does a good he has a good hunt. The food is excellent. Oh, yeah. He's done some of the best food I've ever had. And so uh, yep. it's, it's good hunting. You'll see a lot of game. You'll see a lot of exotics while you're there trying to kill the turkey. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I can't wait to get out there. So get out back out to the Double Draw Ranch. So, well, all right, Bill. Well, thanks, bud. We appreciate it. My pleasure. Thank you. All right. And y'all have a safe, be safe, enjoy getting out in God's creation. He created it for us to get out and enjoy. Have a good time. Enjoy, but be safe. Absolutely. Amen. All right. Thanks, Bill. Thank you. Appreciate it.
Don't miss Thursdays with Saltwater Experience. Brought to you by Golden Boat Lifts. Every Thursday night from 7 to 10 p.m. Eastern on Waypoint TV. The destination for outdoor entertainment. Brave anglers search for the one they call king, but who will take his throne? Tune in to Waypoint TV's Battle for Silver, Saturday, May 18th from 12 to 6 p.m. Eastern. Presented by Abyss Battery, Waypoint TV.